Yeah, we're reading from Nahum, uh, about six books back from the end of the Old Testament, small book. Nahum chapter 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, the rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has come one-fourth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Thanks, Rob. And feel free to keep your uh, Bibles open where they are. Well, how do you feel about uh, vengeance? Uh, We're talking uh, punishment inflicted for wrongdoing, retribution exacted against an offender. Personally, I think we have a bit of a a weird, sort of awkward relationship with vengeance. Because on the one hand, it seems quite violent and harsh. Ideally, it's not something we really want to deal with, right? If you want vengeance, well then it's probably because something bad has happened. If we're going out of our way 
to exact vengeance, then maybe life isn't going so well for us. And when we see vengeful people, maybe we shy away. We don't like it. It's not what we want to see. It's not something we want to think about. But on the other hand, we love vengeance. We love seeing a villain getting what they deserve. If we didn't love it, we wouldn't read and watch and listen to story after story after story with bad guys getting their comeuppance. It doesn't matter to us whether uh, it's fictional stories or stories from real life. We just love seeing people getting what's coming to them. Uh, whether it's a movie villain who has hurt our beloved protagonist's family or a slimy politician getting caught out and having to resign in disgrace. There's a certain satisfaction in seeing it, isn't there? There's a sense that justice has been done, that there's something good about vengeance. And our feelings about vengeance can be even more muddled when we apply it to God. Does God's vengeance make us feel awkward and uncomfortable? Do we maybe find it difficult to put God's vengeance and wrath alongside his love? Do we just avoid it altogether? Well, hopefully, what we're looking at this morning will help clear our thinking because we're getting into the book of Nahum. Uh, we're returning today to an intermittent uh, sermon series of ours here at Willow. Uh, so intermittent that I think it's actually been more than a year uh, since we last delved into one of the major messages of the minor prophets. And this series is really just about scratching the surface of each of the 12 books of the minor prophets in the Bible. It's about getting uh, a sense of what the big idea is of each of these books. And I'm going to ha hazard a guess that regardless of your familiarity with the Bible as a whole, Nahum is probably not a book you turn to very often. Uh, when you're getting into God's Word, this probably isn't where you're spending a lot of time. And when you do read it, like we read uh, the first chapter just now, maybe you can kind of see why that might be the case. Because Nahum is, on the surface, very much a product of its time. And that time was in the latter days of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians had uh, conquered much of Mesopotamia and the Middle East, including the northern kingdom of Israel, and they ruled over Judah, the southern kingdom, which is where the prophet Nahum was speaking from. And as we read uh, just now and over the following two chapters as well, we clearly see that this is fundamentally a book of judgment, of God's wrath being promised against Assyria's leaders. So when we read of woe coming towards Nineveh, as we do in chapter 2, uh, of God declaring that he is against the Assyrian leaders, as he does in chapters 2 and 3, we might look at that and wonder how exactly this is meant to be relevant to us. 
But as with all of Scripture, this is not just a book in its time and of its time. This is a book that declares to us eternal truths about God, about his character and about his actions. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, But can I encourage you to read Nahum in your own time? Maybe even when you get home today, before you watch Tim's ordination service. Uh, It's a short and I think quite a compelling read. Uh, It's written so vividly. Uh, It's full of imagery and colours and voices and sounds that draw you in and make you consider what it's saying. And as you're reading, perhaps you can consider four truths that we're going to look at this morning. How does the text you're reading show us these truths? And the first of these truths is that God's wrath is real. Uh, After all, this is a historical book. Uh, It was written at a particular time concerning a particular people. And we know from history that what God says about Assyria's future turned out to be absolutely true from other books in the Bible and from many, many sources outside the Bible, we know that the Assyrian Empire was overthrown within decades of this book being written. Nahum was meant to be a warning, a guarantor, if you like, for people to look at and see that God's wrath is real. God's judgment is plain to see. And ultimately, this is meant to point us to the future, to the final day of judgment. You may have noticed, as we were reading, that Nahum opens with a series of statements about God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. These aren't specific statements about a specific time. These are eternal truths. We have to remember that ultimately, Nahum is not a book about Assyria. This is a book about God and about our relationship with him. So, we're meant to look at his judgment against Assyria and see that God is who he says he is. He is filled with wrath against the wrongdoer and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And that may make us squirm a bit. Seems a bit uncomfortable for us to consider. Because the question for us to think about is, are we guilty? Are we going to have to face the wrath of the God who makes the whole earth tremble, who can bring down even the most powerful ruler in the world for their wrongdoing? And in one sense, maybe we should be uncomfortable if it means that we're taking God seriously, if we're recognising that we don't want to be facing the wrath of the God who made us and who made everything in our world. But in another sense... This is also meant to be a comfort to us. Because God is not arbitrary in his wrath. He doesn't randomly decide one day to punish people on a whim for doing nothing wrong. 
we're told God is patient. He's slow to anger. He's only punishing the guilty after they've had time to repent of their wrongdoing. And they've shown they have no desire to change, that they love their wickedness. Put simply, God's vengeance is righteous. You see, when we think about vengeance, I think we often think of revenge, right? We might consider, you know, never-ending cycles of retribution, gang warfare, sectarianism, blood feuds, you know, something that might start out as a, a misunderstanding or an accident becomes the reason to get back at someone. And then their friends get back at you, and then your family gets back at them, and on and on and on it goes, escalating and escalating, long after everyone's forgotten how it started. That's a cycle that we see over and over again in human history. And I think it stems from our inability to be the final judge. All of us think we're righteous, we're good judges, we know best. But often we're not any of those things. Our thirst for vengeance becomes an excuse for mob justice, for revenge, for cruelty, for violence. The Assyrian Empire was renowned for their cruelty and violence. Uh, there had been, there'd never been an empire like them before in terms of their power and their leaders reveled in the conquests of the nations around them. They bragged about their treatment of enemy soldiers, how they tortured them, how they killed them, and how they cruelly enslaved the peoples that they ruled over. Their arbitrary justice won them no friends, but they didn't care. As far as the rulers of Assyria were concerned, they were the greatest. And their god, the idol Assur, was with them, they thought. He was guiding them to glory. So, who could possibly hold them to account? Who could possibly defeat them and bring them to justice for what they'd done? Who else would do it but the one true god? After all, the Assyrian leaders hadn't merely acted wickedly towards the Israelites, but also to God by rejecting him. They replaced him with their own false gods. They acted in ways that were totally against God's goodness and love. And they had no intention of changing their ways. They loved their evildoing. And so... God promises that he will bring them to account. That they'll be knocked from their false pretensions at glory and they'll be punished for what they had done to God and the peoples of his world, of his creation. And that's what we want to see, right? We know that that's good, that that's right. We want to see unrepentant people get what's coming to them. When there's a villain who loves being evil... We want the hero to bring them to justice, to enact vengeance on the wrongdoer. And if that doesn't happen, we feel unsatisfied. Because the author, the God of whatever story it is, so to speak, seems unjust. 
So when God himself, the author and hero of the story of all creation, the story that we live in, well, isn't it right that he is the one that executes vengeance in his own story? Not as revenge, not as an ongoing tit-for-tat cycle, but as a once-for-all punishment for unrepentant evil. But that brings us back to the question I asked earlier. Are we guilty? Are we also unrepentant wrongdoers? We may look at the wickedness of the Assyrian leaders and say, oh, well, you know, I'm nothing like that. I'm not enslaving anyone. I'm not murdering anyone. I'm not carousing with prostitutes or engaging in witchcraft. But is that how God sees us? God is the judge. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, warns that anyone who has unjustified anger towards someone else has murdered them in their heart. He tells us that anyone who looks with lust at someone else has committed adultery with them in their heart. Likewise, in Mark 7, Jesus tells us that it's out of our hearts that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, envy, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile us. So if you've ever thought any of those things, then you are defiled. You are a wrongdoer before God. I can put my hand up and say, I'm guilty. And I think you can too. And it's for this reason that vengeance is not ours to do. Sure, governments are given the authority to act on God's behalf temporarily, but they aren't the ultimate judges of right and wrong. Because governments are full of people like you and me. And none of us, rebellious breakers of God's good law that we are, none of us are qualified to be the final judge because our hearts are full of evil. While we recognise something right and good about vengeance because we bear God's image, only God is ultimately qualified for the job because only God is purely good. In fact, for us, as individuals, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, uh, from verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't it interesting? Right in the middle of those verses about showing loving kindness to other people, even to our enemies, 
right in the middle of that sits God's wrath. Isn't it telling that God would be totally justified to punish you and me right now, to judge us according to our deeds, but he hasn't. He's shown patience to us. Why? Well, it's because in God's vengeance, his love is revealed. For some reason, we seem to think that vengeance and love are removed from each other. You know, one's over here, one's over there, never the twain shall meet. But that's not what we see with God. And actually, that's not even what we see from ourselves. Think for a second about a time you wanted vengeance against someone. Who was the victim? Who was the wronged party that you wanted to avenge? Chances are, it was either yourself, or a family member, or a friend. It was someone you love. Now, because evil comes out of our hearts, because our desires are corrupted, that vengeance motivated by love easily becomes a matter of pride. It becomes bloodlust, it becomes rage, it becomes malice. It easily becomes evil itself which is why we're warned against revenge. But now consider God. God isn't tainted by evil. God's love is the purest love in the universe. It is literally an eternal love. And who does God love? Well, God loves himself. God the Father loves God the Son and God the Spirit, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And God loves his chosen people, those he has set apart to be his representatives on earth. And he loves his whole creation because he made it. It belongs to him. So now think, how would a pure, loving God react to those he loves being victims of evil? Would he just sit back and do nothing because, oh, he's so loving he wouldn't hurt a fly? Of course not. That would be incredibly unloving. The loving thing for him to do would be to bring the offender to justice for what they have done. So, in Nahum, we see that Assyria has done evil to God directly we read that they set up idols and images in temples and they worshipped them instead of worshipping the one true God, which is a wicked thing to do, robbing God of his glory. And so, in God's love for himself, in the Trinity's eternal love for one another, Assyria must be brought to justice. We also see that Assyria has maltreated God's people, Judah, the people of Israel, they've enslaved them, they've laid waste to the land, they've plundered them of everything they had and sent the northern kingdom into permanent exile. And so, out of love for his people, God must bring the Assyrian leaders to justice. 
And we see as well that the kings of Assyria did this to every nation. The ending verse of the book of Nahum as a whole says, All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? And so, out of love for his whole creation, God must exact vengeance against these wrongdoers. And of course, because this is just an image, a foreshadow of God's judgment against all evil, we must then consider how God, in his love, will deal with our sin, with our evil. And what do we find? When we look in the Bible, in God's word, what does he tell us? Well, he gives us possibly the most famous verse in all of scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God, in his love for his people, poured his wrath on Jesus. God himself experienced his own vengeance for our wickedness. That is how much he loves us. He gave us his son as a gift so that he could judge us not guilty. So that we wouldn't have to experience his fearsome wrath because he loves us. And now he's given us time to repent. Earlier in this series, probably two years ago actually, (laughs) we looked at the book of Jonah Uh, And Jonah was tasked with sending the message of God's salvation to who? To Nineveh, yeah, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. In God's immense love, even the enemy who appears to be furthest from him is given the chance to repent. And indeed, it was only because their initial repentance didn't continue in later generations that God's judgment came upon them. God, in his slow anger, waits for us to recognize our need for him, knowing that one day his vengeance against wrongdoing will come. Just as the day of the Lord was coming for Assyria to be judged, so too one day Jesus will return and we will be judged according to whether we've accepted his gift of salvation. Whether we experience eternal life, whether we receive a reprieve from his wrath depends on one simple thing. Do we accept his offer of refuge? And this is the last thing we see in Nahum, that in him, God's people are given refuge. While God spends a lot of time warning Assyria of what will come upon them, in the first third or so of this book, God shifts his attention between Assyria and Judah. And when he speaks to Judah, what does he say? The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. Look, There on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. 
Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. For God's people, the coming of the day of the Lord isn't a cause for fear. God's wrath, his coming vengeance against evil, isn't something for those who trust in him to be scared of. No, quite the opposite. The name Nahum means comforter. And his message of God's vengeance, born out of love, is meant to be a comfort for us. It's meant to be a cause for joy, for hope, something for us to hold on to throughout our lives because it means that if we trust in God, then we are protected from his wrath. And one day, we will see true justice take place. Once and for all. We will see evil dealt with forever. And we will be gifted a perfect world to live in. I think one of the biggest causes of revenge is impatience. It's a belief that unless I exact vengeance, justice will never be done. And sometimes justice in this world can seem to take a long time. And oftentimes, it seems as though it will never come. Some people seem to get away with murder, literally. But God promises us that no, justice will come. He is patient. He is slow in his anger, but God knows everything that has happened in this world and it will be dealt with. It is his to avenge. So for those who trust in Jesus, that joy that everyone feels when a villain is brought to justice will be magnified infinitely on the day of judgment. Because all injustice will be brought to an end. It will be dealt with forever. And for Nahum, that's a cause for celebration. God tells us to sing, to have our festivals, to party. Because the pain of injustice in this world will be eliminated. It's a sure thing. And we, who should be among the judged, we will instead have a refuge with God. God, in his love, chooses to protect all who accept his offer of forgiveness because he poured out his wrath on his son. We don't need to earn our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. We have done grievous things to God. But the offer is there of an, immense, of an escape from God's immense wrath. And it's ours for the taking, freely given. At its heart, Nahum is a book all about the vengeance of the loving God. We've seen that his wrath is real, his vengeance is righteous, and that in it his love is revealed because he gives his people refuge. My hope is that on the day Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, every single one of us will be shielded from God's vengeance by God himself. That each of us will have taken refuge in the loving sacrifice of Jesus. And together, 
will be celebrating the end of injustice and the beginning of a restored, perfect, eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. And dear Lord, our merciful Father, thank you for showing us the truth of who you are. And that you are a God whose wrath comes against evil, whose vengeance is righteous against wickedness. But that this comes from your love and you provide us a great refuge. Lord, help us to see all this, to know this, to uh, know the immensity of your love, the incredibleness of your offer of shelter and help us to accept it. Lord, help us by your spirit to believe in you and the grace you offer in Jesus, that your wrath is satisfied in his death for our sake so that we can have uh, the comfort, the hope of knowing your day of judgment will come when all evil is ended and we will live with you forever in your new creation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.